thank you all for being here and celebrating this glorious day, Good Friday. And so I'm going to read the first reading, which is Luke 23, verse 32 through 34. And it says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. When I listen or read or just think about the crucifixion, I kind of try to take myself back into the time where Jesus was being crucified, kind of being like the fly on the wall, to see really how was it. Being the fly to see that Jesus' friend, Jesus' friend betrayed him. He sold him for 30 silver coins. People accused him of doing and saying things that he never did. He was beaten. He was put on a cross, nails in his body, hanging him up there on a cross. And as I'm this fly on the wall, I, I sit there with everyone and I look. And I see Jesus hanging up there. You can't recognize him. He doesn't even look like a human. And I just think about how much he had to go through. Carrying the cross, falling, trying to drag the cross to the skull, to the place where he's going to die. And I sit there and I think about just the sounds he's going to make. The, the words that would come out of his mouth. I kind of envision myself up there and say, what would I say? Ow, please get me off of this. This hurts. And then it's like, if I could make words, what prayer would I say? It wouldn't be forgive them. It'd be take me down. Father, please get me off of this. Curse them. Get, take them away. Kill them. But he says, forgive Father, forgive. He's not saying, Father, forgive me, because he was perfect. He didn't lie. He didn't do anything. He was perfect. So he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so I sit there and I think about myself for which way am I going? Where am I going? Do I not know what I do? And when I hear this prayer, what I see is there's a lot of love in it. And my prayer for this prayer is that I hope we all can accept this love. And when I say we all, I mean globally. I'll be reading Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are getting the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the midst of the sadness and his death on a cross, Jesus offers us hope. In the last act of his life, Jesus shows us exactly what he came to earth to do. He shows his love, his grace, and his redemption to the criminal on a cross next to him. 
we're reminded that what we do doesn't save us. It's what Jesus did that saves us. Both criminals asked to be saved. One of them didn't have faith that Jesus was who he said he was. The second criminal knew who Jesus was, and he had faith that Jesus would do what he said he would do. The second criminal also acknowledged his sin and knew that he deserved the death that he was getting. He also knew Jesus did not deserve that death. Jesus makes a promise to the second criminal. He says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice that Jesus' promise is not only, it's not just a promise, it's immediate. Jesus doesn't say, tomorrow you can be with me in heaven, or when I get settled back in heaven. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. His promise is also full. For Jesus doesn't just promise heaven, how any of us would love to hear simply that promise. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. We will get to be with Jesus, the Son of God, the right hand of the Father. We'll get to hang out with Jesus in heaven. Who are we to deserve this response? The answer is, we don't deserve it. We all fall short of the glory of God. But because Jesus is who he is, and because he did what he did on the cross and through his resurrection, he promises us the same immediate and full promise. All the criminal had to do was acknowledge his sin and have faith in who Jesus was. This is the love and the grace and the redemption that Jesus came to offer us. Author and speaker Max Licato sums up these verses beautifully. He says, It makes me smile to think there is a grinning ex-con walking the golden streets who knows more about grace than a thousand theologians. No one else would have given him a prayer, but in the end, that's all he had. And in the end, that's all it took. Our third word is from John 19, 25 through 27. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. When Scott asked me to do this reflection, I thought, yes, as long as it's not that mother, here is your son one. <laughs> because that's the one. That's the one that breaks my heart every time, every year. Mother, this is your son. To her, Jesus just isn't the Lamb of God, the one she knew would deliver us all. He's still her little boy and she can't help him. We can only imagine what must have been going through Mary's heart and mind as she saw her son hanging on a cross. He was dying, and she was powerless to help him. How much Mary must have wanted to interrupt her son's suffering, to take it upon herself just as she had thousands and thousands of time as she soothed the infant and toddler Jesus, who ran into her arms for protection. And now his arms are nailed to the cross, unable to run to her for protection. Pain often makes us self-absorbed, and as a result, we turn upon ourselves and away from others. Jesus showed us that his love for his mother and his best friend was personal, and it transcended his pain. As he hung on the cross, shedding his blood for the sins of the world, 
In the midst of his own intense suffering, Jesus showed love and compassion. And he's also showing us how he's not too busy, not too tired, or too distracted to care. Jesus' heart went out to his mother. Jesus told his best friend John to take care of his mother. How touching, how caring. But consider for a moment, Jesus could have said these things to Mary and John at any point on this journey. He knew the cross was coming. He could have done this the night before while in the upper room. He could have leaned over to John and asked him to take care of his mother right there, but he didn't. Why did he choose the moment when he was hanging on the cross, paying for the sins of the world, to stop and take care of Mary's future? This moment on the cross, could it be a glimpse into the heart of God? I wonder if Jesus was revealing something to us. He was letting us see a view of God's heart most of us would have missed otherwise. It's a beautiful picture of how God actually loves us. Perhaps Jesus intentionally chose this moment to demonstrate, not just for his mother and his best friend, but for all of us, how big and wide his love is. When Jesus said to Mary, Mother, here is your son, and to John, here is your mother, I think this is much more than simply asking his friend to look after his mother when he's gone. Let us imagine that Jesus was speaking not only to his mother and his beloved disciple, but he was speaking to you, to me, to all of us. And he was redefining who family is. Could it be from that moment on the cross he's commanding us to live as, as if all these strangers, all these people around us and fellow sinners are now family? Jesus entrusts his own mother into the hands of a man whose only connection to him is love. Mother, this is your son, the person who gets angry at work. Oh, mother, this is your son, the person struggling with depression and anxiety. Mother, this one here, this too is your son, the person caught up in addiction. This then is your mother, the person who works too much. Oh, this one is also your mother, the person with control issues. This one here, this too is your mother, the person who feels like they don't measure up. Jesus was there and Jesus is here, leading his mother and his friend to each other, leading us to each other 2,000 years later. The cross with its horizontal reach begs of us to open up and care for others, including our natural and our spiritual family, while the vertical connection reminds us that God is with us in it all. Saying your family is much bigger than you think. Your family isn't only what you think, it isn't only who you think, and it might not necessarily be someone you want it to be. Mother, behold your son, the angry teenager, the student shot to death in Florida, the school bully. Son, behold your mother, the person who thinks it's all about them, the sarcastic person who gets laughs at the sake of someone else the friend that speaks the hard truth. Family, the people who make us uncomfortable. Family, the people who challenge us. Family, the people who love. Family, the people we are connected to through Jesus. Jesus changes the basis of relationships, not just for Mary and John, but also for you and me and everyone who believes. Beneath the cross, all true believers become family. Beneath the cross, all become brothers and sisters in Christ.
Beneath the cross, we all become part of the family of God. The church, a loving, caring, sustaining, encouraging family beyond family. So look around the room tonight. Would you be willing to see them not just as people gathered here at the foot of the cross? Many of the people you hardly know. Some you have nothing in common with. Because of these words on the cross, God will give you grace to be able to see these strangers as your family. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Hi, everyone. My name is Scott, and I struggle with anxiety, depression, fear, trust, and abandonment. In the New International Version, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 through 46 reads, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other translations, it reads, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Martin Luther actually uh, set out to study this profound cry of Jesus he studied for a long time in solitude, without food and in deep meditation. At last he rose from his chair and was heard to exclaim in amazement, God forsaken of God? Who can understand that? Jesus speaks the words of Psalm 22.1, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Psalm 22 is a psalm of suffering, of crying out to God, and also a psalm of victory. At the moment Jesus says these words, he is experiencing the anguish of spiritual separation from his Father. For the first time, he is experiencing this as he takes the sins of the world on his shoulders. Jesus is dying two deaths, a physical death and a spiritual death. The severe pain and suffering of spiritual death is what Jesus dreaded when he fell with his face to the ground and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Wondered where he was when you lost your job. Or what a loved one has lost. Or felt like there is no way he could possibly love me after I have everything I have done, after all the sins I have committed. I have. Most recently, when we received the call on January 15th, 2017 that my brother had died in an accident. I wrestled and struggled with God through grief and sorrow, through the guilt I felt because I had not talked to him for several years because of past hurts. I felt so alone. It took coming to celebrate recovery and attending the Celebrate Recovery Step Study, being circled in prayer at an FCA football camp by about 100 young football players, other leaders, and fellow coaches, and the love and support of my family, friends, and Celebrate Recovery brothers 
to be reminded, I am not alone, and we don't have to do it alone. To be reminded of God's love, to be reminded that God was there the whole time. It was not God who had abandoned me. It was me who had abandoned God. My God, my God, why have I abandoned you? Jesus knew that spiritual separation was coming. It's the same spiritual separation we feel when sin has a grip on us. The sin that separates us from God is the very sin that Jesus took on. Even though Jesus felt abandoned, God was there the whole time. Perhaps he looked away because he could not bear to see his son in such pain and suffering, but he was still there. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, Paul writes, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus has sacrificed his life. Jesus suffered the spiritual death to save us from eternal separation from God. God's grace is amazing. His love is unfailing. And Sunday is coming. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. John chapter 19, verse 28. I want to be thirsty, and I need to be thirsty. But here's my problem. I temporarily quench my thirst with other things of this world when I should be seeking the life-giving water that only Christ can offer us. Paul describes in Romans something that has been repeating itself in my mind for years. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. It's found in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. I so desperately desire to devote myself to what God's pure and perfect will is for my life. I'm thirsty to understand that through only his grace, despite my many repeating failures, he will allow me to receive these outpourings of his love into my life. I'm thirsty to understand that I cannot do this alone, and I need to trust and I need to lean into my relationship with him, Christ our Savior. I yearn to be the husband that God is training me to be instead of someone who takes my beautiful and compassionate and sacrificial wife that he has blessed me with for granted. I love to be the father. I would long to be the father who admires my children every minute I get to be with them, instead of disengaging and forgetting my role that God has placed me in. I'm eager to be the teacher who loves on my students at school, no matter how frustrating they can be, because I know they may not be receiving it anywhere else. 
I hunger to be a coworker who's bold enough to be the only light at times in very dark and discouraging situations. I crave to be the human being that God is obviously challenging me to be when I see a stranger in need of love, but I turn my eyes and pretend not to see. I need to live out the idea of my I am second bracelet that I wear daily as a reminder to humble myself and love those around me instead of pursue my careless and selfish ways. I pray right here and right now for an unfathomable fascination into the truth of Jesus' humanity. Some of his dying words were to simply ask for a drink. I itch to have the curiosity of someone who, has, who wasn't raised in the church. I hunger for the passion that fresh eyes in our faith have in pursuing the truth of God's word. I pray for the urge to pray and have the confidence that my words have been heard by my God, who has been proven, who has proven he has been there over and over and over. I'm challenging myself to listen to this verse as motivation to gain this thirst that I'm talking about. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you this light. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. I want to be awake instead of sleeping. I need to be alive instead of simply existing. I feel a convincing hope through the stories of Jesus' suffering far greater than I do today. I feel an irresistible hope to believe that a man named Jesus long ago died for me to live. I feel a powerful hope behind the truth of Jesus being fully man, yet still rising from the dead. I feel a growing hope that this good news of Christ's resurrection will deepen its stronghold in my soul instead of pass by as just another holiday that I've experienced since childhood. The light of his grace is what gives me this hope. What do you need to be thirsty for? Please examine that. We should want to be thirsty. We need to be thirsty. I'm thirsty. A jar of wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I read an interesting explanation of verse 29, written by Emanuel Swedenborg, who's the Christian theologian that authored Apocalypse Explained. Swedenborg suggests that it's logical to picture Jesus as the perfect wine, and humans as the sour wine or the vinegar. And on the surface, our attempts to live out our lives in service of Jesus are often vinegar. They're imperfect and not motivated by correct things, and each of us, despite our best efforts, falls short. Now, hyssop is a mint. It's, an, a mint, it's a mint from the herb family with cleansing properties, and it's mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. One example is in Exodus 12, when hyssop was used to dip in the blood of the lamb's sacrifice to paint the doorways of God's people so that God would spare their firstborn when passing through Egypt during the plagues. Hyssop was used as a tool to spare the lives of believers. And then in Psalm 51, hyssop is referenced again as a cleansing agent in verse 7, which says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. So rest assured that even when our efforts are vinegar, the beauty is that when we make our best efforts to satisfy the Lord's desire to save all people, our good hearts, just like the hyssop, um, they purify our efforts. Now, verse 30 used to break me every Good Friday service. When I was younger, I grasped that this is the moment when Jesus dies and death is sad. And then I became a mom. And the whole idea of the crucifixion and Jesus as a son took on new meaning. 
I struggled with the concept that any parent, much less a parent as powerful as God, could sit idly by and watch his son die in such a painful way. And really, most endings are sad, are they not? Death, job loss, kids moving out, divorce, breakups, endings are wrought with uncertainty and hurt. But endings often also mean new beginnings. When we decided to move back to Iowa from Kansas City, a friend of mine from the church down there gave me this angel figurine. And on it, it says, the world is round, and the place which may seem like the end may also be the beginning. And that is always true. So when Jesus said, it is finished, what had ended was our life tied to our sins. And what was coming, our being made new, was our life in the grace of God. Now, of course, this does not diminish the hurt or answer why the Most High God allowed the ending to be so brutal in the case of the, resurrec in the resurrection. In the book Love Warrior, Glennon Doyle Melton says, our purpose is in our pain. And what's interesting about pain is that we, and he, we as humans fear it. We tend to run from it, hide from it, or we try to cope with it in ways that are often very unhealthy. Denial, drinking, lying, busy schedules, uh, friends, jobs, Bullying, pornography, the list is really endless. But what Jesus did is he walked straight into the pain. I mean, he knew what he was walking into, right? He knew that those closest to him would betray him. He knew there would be physical pain beyond measure. He knew there would be humiliation. And he wrestled with that, but he chose to walk into it. What's it look like to bravely walk into our pain instead of taking the easy way out? I'll tell you, I was recently downsized. After 10 years in a job that had been the one constant for me in a myriad of personal change, deaths, divorce, multiple moves, sick kids, church hurts, blending of my new family, my one constant was the steady job that I was good at. And when that announcement came, I wanted to hide. I wanted to cry and be angry and feel sorry for myself. What I've learned in this last year of transition is that I didn't need that job to be me. I didn't need that title, I didn't need that self-normal, that safe normal, that familiar routine to enjoy my family, to enjoy coaching and leading and serving. And I rediscovered what's important to my heart, which is kids. Our kids, their friends, our friends as kids, middle school kids here at Hope, sixth grade volleyball girls, refugee kids at Zion, teen moms in support programs. I love every moment that I am blessed to love on them. Because here's the thing. The things they face on a daily basis are heartbreaking. Their lived stories are so often heartbreaking. The social issues they fear and are faced with are heartbreaking. The pressures they feel to constantly do better are heartbreaking. The lack of confidence they have in themselves is heartbreaking. The judgment and the stigmas they have to overcome are heartbreaking. The racism and classism and misogyny and sexism and gender expectations they face are heartbreaking. These things collectively break my heart, and collectively they have become my purpose. Now what break your heart breaks your heart may be different. Is it poverty, homelessness, war, politics, gun violence, domestic violence, high school kids, cancer, mental health, healthcare, whatever it is. Take Jesus' example in this season and do not run or hide from the things that break your heart. Let it drive your purpose. Friends, we are called on to do the good, the bad, and the ugly in life. If it were all good, we would be cold and entitled because it is the tough that makes us better. It's in those moments that we learn compassion and we learn empathy and strength. So earlier I mentioned that I struggled to grasp this crucifixion because really how many of us as parents would love to protect our kids from anything painful? 
But we have to ask ourselves, what is it that teaches our kids compassion, empathy, tolerance, and kindness, and often leads them to their purpose? It is our pain. So what is it that we're to do as parents? We can stand with our kids in the pain. God stood with Jesus in the pain. Mary stood with Jesus in the pain. They were present for Jesus. And we read the stories of their grief. But they allowed him to fill his purpose right on through his pain. Now, without the crucifixion, we know there'd be no resurrection. So Jesus courageously marched into his greatest pain to embrace his ultimate power. When he cried out, it is finished, he announced not that he is done or that his life is over, but he gave a cry of victory. He had completed his mission, fulfilled his purpose, pushed through his pain so that he could declare it is paid in full. The storm is over. I have run my race. The power of sin and death is vanquished forever, and God has dealt Satan power a fatal blow. It is finished. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus was a teacher. Among all the things that Jesus was, he was a teacher. His followers would call him rabbi, the Hebrew word for teacher. When Mary sees him at the empty tomb, she cries out, rabbi, teacher. Jesus was a gifted teacher. And he was very familiar with the way that Hebrew students were brought up. You see, in his day, a big part of the Jewish school system depended on memorization, especially memorization of the Hebrew scriptures They didn't have printed Bibles that they could carry around. The scriptures lived on giant scrolls in the temple. And the only way you could learn them was to go to the temple. And the only way you could carry them with you was in your mind. So young people in the Hebrew society would memorize the first five books of our Old Testament by the time they were 13. And they would go on to continue to memorize the histories and the prophecies. And everybody memorized the Psalms. The book of the Psalms was the songbook for the people of Israel. It was their greatest hits, the things that they would call to mind. I've sat with some of you in, in your times of grief and mourning and struggle, and you've shared with me how a certain Christian song would come on the radio and it would cause you to feel comfort. That was the Psalms for the people of Israel, that in times of pain, they would look to those songs and be reminded of God's promises. And because they were memorized, because they were so well known, Jesus, using his very final words, employs a teaching method known very well to the Jewish population of that time called remez, R-A-M-E-Z, remez, the Hebrew word for hint. Jesus is giving a hint. He doesn't have enough breath left in his lungs to preach a sermon. He doesn't have enough words left to be able to tell everybody what's really going on. He has enough for one last hint. And he actually does this a lot. When he's standing before Pilate on trial, Jesus says, when you see me again, you will see me seated at the right hand of the Father. That's from Psalm 110. It's a hint, a remez, meant to tell us to go and look at the rest of the story. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as Scott told us, he's quoting, he's hinting at Psalm 22. Go and read the rest of that story. 
And when he cries out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a remez. It's a hint. Quoting Psalm 31. And when, when he were given a remez as a student, as a follower of Jesus or another rabbi, you were supposed to remember, either by memorizing it or going and studying it again, what the rest of the story is. He's not saying those words just to God or to himself. He's teaching with his very last breath. And this is the rest of the story in Psalm 31. I entrust my spirit to your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. You have seen my trouble and you care for the anguish of my soul. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I am wasting away within. But, but, I am trusting you, O Lord, saying you are my God. My future is in your hands. I panic. I cried out. I am cut off from the Lord, but you heard my cry for mercy and answered my call for help. Jesus, with his final breath, is saying that this is not the end of the story. This is not how everything ends. Teaching us, giving us a hint to say, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. That this is not how this story ends. And that in our deepest pain, in the midst of our grief and our sadness, when we think that we're abandoned and alone, Jesus is giving us a hint too. Cry out to the Lord, for he will rescue you. He will lift you up. And you will find your help and your salvation in him.